The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Support for this show comes from Flatiron Books, publishers of Real Love, the new book from Sharon Salzberg. Learn to connect more deeply and redefine love with this creative toolkit of mindfulness exercises at SharonSalzberg.com. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, this is Essential Conversations. Our guest today is Dr. Lucy Hone. She's the author of Resilient Grieving, Finding Strength and Embracing Life After a Loss That Changes Everything. Dr. Hone holds a PhD in the field of resilient psychology and is a pioneer in fusing positive psychology and bereavement research. Her book applies her research findings to her own process of coping with the tragic death of her 12-year-old daughter, Abby, who died in a car accident in 2014. A review of Resilient Grieving appears in the May-June issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. Lucy, welcome to Essential Conversations. Um, welcome, and thank you very much for having me this morning. I say this morning, Rami, because I'm in New Zealand, and it's the morning here. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm talking to you in the future. <laughs> that's, that's always exciting. Uh, I have a copy of the book in front of me. I have been reading it. It is, I mean, it's a poignant read. It's a powerful read, but it's also, I would say, revolutionary. I grew up on the five stages of grief. <laughs> grief. Uh, yeah, you're laughing. Yeah. <laughs> but but I grew up on that. I mean, my training when I deal with with death, with uh, you know, dying and bereavement and all that, is based on Elizabeth Kubler Ross's five stages of grief. And I and I want to get in on into that and how you really offer a, a powerful alternative. But we need to place this in the context for the listener. So before we do that. You know, help help us understand. The, I mean, this tragedy that that uh, your your you know, if your daughter's dying, and and how you coped with it. So, when Abby died, along with um, her best friend Ella, 
and Ella's mum, Sally, who was also a dear friend of mine. Three years ago this weekend, we were travelling on a public holiday weekend. We had all um, three families agreed to go mountain biking in the very most beautiful part of New Zealand, you know, on another lovely family weekend. And Abby hopped in the car with Ella at the last minute and they... A driver just drove straight through a stop sign and ploughed into the side of the car, killing them instantly. So, you know, sudden death, traumatic death, um, little girls, um, you know, the loss of one of my best friends who I would have coped through this process with. So it was um, just that heart-stopping, life-changing moment where you get presented with a fork in the road that you never imagined happening. And the the immediate irony for me is that I am a practicing resilience academic, which means that I work in this field of resilience psychology and well-being science. I'd already been working um, to take that academic knowledge out to help people in real life circumstances in our post-earthquake environment here in Christchurch, New Zealand. So I'd already had to apply quite a lot of, you know, my academic training in a professional nature. And I honestly thought that was my calling. That was my life moment. But when the girls died, I realized I was going to have to apply this knowledge in a completely different, much more personal way. And, you know, I guess I'm a researcher, I'm curious, I'm a writer. And so uh, for me, dealing with their death, the most logical thing to do was to start writing down my thoughts. Um, So I started blogging and then the blog was quickly picked up by a publisher and became this book, Resilient Grieving. So it was a pretty swift process, really, for me. Let, let me ask you, you know, first, you're coming at this as an academic, you're coming at this as a researcher, and suddenly you're a participant, I guess one way to put it. Did, did you find something new, a different dimension or an, an additional dimension to your understanding of resilience when you're going through this? So I look back on my processes in the moment, you know, in those first minutes and first hours, and I now, very recently, I've been reconsidering them and I realize, you know, I do display the textbook characteristics of a resilient person, which isn't, you know, what I'm, I'm not saying that to, um, to boast or because I'm proud of it, but I literally saw this fork in the road occur in my head. And I remember thinking, oh, wow, um, didn't see that coming. Wow. Oh, we've now got a plow that right-hand path and I really wasn't expecting that and that's going to be really hard work but here we go and so it was very kind of matter of fact very um had all the signs of realistic optimism which is a vital characteristic for resilient people Um, and by that I mean that I immediately focus my attention on the things that I could change and not the things that I can't um and so I remember within day, I think it was on, so they died on Saturday afternoon. On Monday, I remember standing by my, in my kitchen by the oven thinking, don't lose what you've got 
to what you have lost. You've still got two beautiful boys. You need to focus on them. You need to move forward and you need to do everything you possibly can. Use all those strategies that you've been taught to enable you to adapt as best you can. You know, I wasn't trying to, <laughs> resilience isn't isn't bravery you know it isn't just putting on a um a really sort of tough attitude it's not mental toughness it's about vulnerability too and it's just about mainly functioning was my initial goal just seeing if i could use these skills to help me continue to function what about abby's brothers how old were they who were 14 and 15 at the time. Um, they're now 19 and 17. And I try not to talk about them too much, Rami, because they're okay. teenage boys. <laughs> and I feel the last thing they need in their lives is their mother talking about them all okay. over the world. All right, <laughs> Let's give I, them a bit, of, a bit right. of freedom and independence, shall we? All right, we'll, give them, we'll honor their, their privacy yeah. then. <laughs> so in, in the book, you write, and this is just a quick quote from the book, human beings are hardwired to cope. And, and you said that you discovered you were a resilient person, but if I, I want to know more about how we're hardwired to cope, if we're all to one degree or another resilient people. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's a really important point to make is that we are all, we all have this capacity for resilience. It isn't something that you're either born with or born without. And really it's a matter of engaging what Anne Marston, one of the leading researchers in the field, refers to as ordinary magic. I really love her phrase. And what we mean by that is being able to reach out to your friends, being able to communicate effectively with them about what you need and what you don't need, being able to view the situation you're in And as I've said, focus on the things that you can change, not get caught up in the things that you can't. Having an attitude of gratitude, you know, being able to really notice the good things that are still in your lives. And just applying all of those. So we can, much of my work is about helping people understand the processes and the thinking and the strengths that they can bring to bolster their personal resilience. Because absolutely all those things I've described, we can do. But I think in the world we live in at the moment, there's currently a lack of literacy about, a lack of understanding about well-being and resilience. So I think that's really my main thrust in my work nowadays is just getting people to understand what they can do to foster their own capacity for adaptation to loss, to adapt to, you know, their new world. And that's what this book, Resilient Grieving, is about. You know, how do we do that? And you give six strategies for doing that, if, if I'm not mistaken. I, I, is that, I mean, these strategies are the ways that one copes. Am I Actually, I'd say I, I'd say I give many more because to me it's not a, um, so firstly, the really important thing is to be your own experiment, just to try these things out. And I look upon the strategies and tools as a many um, pieced jigsaw. And so there's a jigsaw puzzle in the back of the book of all the strategies I used. And some of them are just tiny little pieces pieces of information that help me along the way. And one of them is the um, the grief hijack, the fact that you can be completely hijacked 
by your grief when you're standing in the supermarket doing your groceries. You know, and I needed to know that. I needed someone to tell me that would happen and that it's okay that that's happened. So it's actually, I think, a myriad of little processes and little bits of knowledge that help you go through that and navigate your own best path through that process. And, and how does it compare to, well, I mean, you know, I said in the beginning that this was very revolutionary because of the sort of the standardization of, of Kubler-Ross's five stages. Walk us through the stages and what, why they don't work, I, if, if that's a fair thing to say, what, where they're off and where your approach to resilience really helps people move either through them or beyond them. Okay, so it's such a good question because this is really where the genesis of the book came from for me. I, like you, was aware of the five stages of grief. I knew very little about bereavement psychology when Abby died. I probably could have named three or four of the five stages. Knowing them is useful, really useful, because all I did feel most of those things every day so it's well, not like a, a linear process you go through you know so um, let's, let's just let, yeah i'm not sure everyone knows what they are so just list the five stages for us i think i can list them now um <laughs> denial bargaining um depression acceptance and anger so i certainly didn't i never felt anger um forgiveness was my only path forward right from the outset um so so i disagree that you have to feel all five I'd gr I do agree that lots of people do feel all those things. And it's really useful to be told this is how you're going to feel. But I found them really insufficient in that I wanted to know what I could do. And they didn't give me any inkling as to what I could do that science had shown might help me navigate this process. So I found them essentially too passive and I wanted to take a proactive approach to my grieving. You know, I had no choice in the girl's death. It was just that final, you know, moment that you have, you can't do anything about. And I felt so helpless that what I wanted to do afterwards was exert any influence I possibly could in how I would enable myself to live through that event and the aftermath and return to living a normal as life as I possibly could so that I could be there as a mother for my family so that we could move forward together. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. So that's that's the next thing I want to ask you about is is because you know we're used to talking about post-traumatic stress. You know, and you talk about post-traumatic growth. And 
yeah, go ahead. You're, you're mm. going to respond mm. to that. <laughs> so um, one of the things is that, yeah, people, everybody seems to know about post-traumatic stress. You know, that's something else that's um, quickly comes to our mind. And in fact, we were told on day one that we were prime candidates for divorce, mental illness and family estrangement. And I remember thinking, oh, thanks for that diagnosis. That's really helpful. Nobody ever, I wouldn't have wanted someone to tell me about post-traumatic growth on day one. That would have felt like some kind of terrible hurdle that I had to achieve. It's not really a matter um, of that. What is, does, has become apparent from my understanding of the bereavement literature and the resilience psychology literature is that it is possible to grow and change from a traumatic event such as this. And certainly my life has shifted. I, I didn't used to know anything about bereavement and I didn't used to work in this field of applying resilience psychology to the grieving context. So post-traumatic growth is understanding that however terrible these events are, some people do actually change and grow from them. So I would... Um, I don't like people saying that my life is better than it was before because it certainly isn't better. I would do anything to have Abby back. But I have um, I have grown. I've learned an awful lot about myself and the processes of grieving from this experience. And I have made some, by writing the book and working with all kinds of organizations to help them understand this capacity for resilience and how it can be applied to grief. I think I have made something meaningful come out of the girl's loss. So it's a kind of a question of making sense out of the senseless. And that's a characteristic of post-traumatic growth. And you see that, you'll see that with the Mothers Against Drunk Drivers and other organizations in America where people have taken their tragedy to turn it into something that benefits others. Did you do something concrete like that? Or is, is this the work that you're doing, the result of that? Yeah, the book is the result of yeah. that, because I get asked to speak all over the um, world about resilient grieving, but I often say to people, just read my book. <laughs> you know, it's the, you can get it from the library. You can get it from wherever. Um, it's, the, it's the encapsulation of ev all of the research I did into this process. Um, so, yeah, it's, um, it's certainly a new line of research that I'm interested in continuing. You know, I'm looking to work with other researchers to really do some, um, to give some concrete steps that can be used by grief counsellors and therapists as a model and pathway um, to help people to foster resilience in bereavement. So one of the things that I, I mean, it's just a, a single sentence that stood out to me in the book near the end, because um, I've not gone through anything remotely like what you've experienced, but I have been with people who have. I mean, I was a congregational rabbi for 20 years, so you can't help but experiencing some of this secondhand. And you've got this line in the book that says, I'm not so keen on Seligman's, and he's the happiness psychology guy. Mm. Uh, I'm not so keen on Seligman's description that the people demonstrating post-traumatic growth were better off, and you used that term a second ago, mm. uh, mm. within, within a year. And, and 
you say that the word better is too easily misconstrued. Do you get a sense that people expect too much of themselves, that they should, I, I mean, this sounds horrible, get over it, you know, within a year to feel better within a year? Or really is resilience, uh, a, there's no single time frame for resilience. It's it's your own Mm, your mm. own time frame. Um, I, I definitely agree. There is no time frame for resilience, and I would absolutely hate my work and my book to exert pressure on people to feel like they've got to be resilient, meaning that they've got to be all strong and you know immediately capable, because that's just rubbish, really. That and if you read my book, you know that's not what it's about. People have said right. that to me that they really get that I'm saying to them these are these are the processes and the capacities and the strengths and the tools that come out of resilience psychology that I tried. Try some of these for yourself. See which work for you. I mean, I'm a um, pretty close colleague of Marty Seligman's, and I I don't think I I don't think he would stand by that comment particularly. You know, I don't think he meant he wouldn't expect me to be better, and he certainly wouldn't expect me to get over my grief. I saw him quite recently, and he's a family man himself. He knows that you don't lose a child and ever get over it. Mm. So. Um, I think it is just a matter of doing the best you can at the time and, and understanding and being self-compassionate, understanding that, you know, we all have good and bad days and hours and minutes. And um, it certainly is a roller coaster. You know, there's just you just have to live it and be truthful to the experience, I think. What about religion and faith? Uh, you know, this is Spirituality and Health magazine. So on the spirituality end of it, um, I don't know what you're, if you, if you subscribe to a specific religion or if you even use the kind of terminology that spirituality might invoke, but uh, what, what's your sense of that, if you, if you have a, a sense of that, of how spirituality or, and or religion might be of help to people who are um, dealing with this kind of situation? I think it is um, an enormous help to people who are dealing with death. Um, I don't know where Abby and the girls are now. I wish I did know. Um, I've got some pretty big questions around that. And I definitely have a sense of the sacred. Um, and to me, that translates to enjoying and doing as much as you can with your short life in the time that you have it. Um, so I absolutely believe that I have one life and I must make it count. And I want to make Abby, Ella and Sally's lives count for something too. So have you had people say, well, I know where my child is or I know where my, my loved one is and that gives them, I mean, I mean what I'm thinking of is that sometimes yeah. they can be so certain that they don't grieve at all. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's that's sort of way out of um, my understanding. But I have had people say to me, "Oh, they're you know they're better off. They're having a lovely time in heaven." And I think, yeah, well, they're better off. You know, she, I kind of think she quite enjoyed it down here <laughs> when I watched her. <laughs> she was having a pretty good life, and she had a lot of good years in her. So um, that doesn't work for me. But I, just, I take that back to the fact that you do what works for you. And if that works for you, and it helps you adapt to the loss, that's our job. As the bereaved, it's our job to do what we can to enable us to live on in a purposeful way that is healthy. And we 
are adapting to the world without them as best we can. That is a perfect way to end our little conversation, our short conversation. Uh, Lucy, this was really fantastic. Uh, I very much appreciate you being on the show with us. Our guest today was Dr. Lucy Hone. She's a pioneer in positive psychology and resilient grieving and has authored this new book, Resilient Grieving, Finding Strength and Embracing Life After a Loss That Changes Everything. A review of the book appears in the May-June issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. And if people want to learn more about your work, Lucy, where can they go? They can go to my Facebook page, which is One Wild and Precious Life. That's with a digit one at the beginning. And and I have a website that is resilient grieving, but I haven't got time to actually put anything on it so they can watch this space. But All thank right. you for having me, Rami. And I really appreciate your listeners' time. And um, it's been an honor to talk to you. No, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Support for this show comes from Flatiron Books, publishers of Real Love, a new book from Sharon Salzberg. Learn to connect more deeply and redefine love with this creative toolkit of mindfulness exercises at SharonSalzberg.com. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is a project of Spirituality and Health magazine. Please log in to SpiritualityHealth.com to subscribe to the magazine in print or digital formats and download the iTunes app for this podcast. Essential Conversations is produced by Ezra Baker, and our program coordinator and executive producer is Alma Tassi. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. We spend a third of our lives sleeping and dreaming, yet most of us have no idea what goes on during that time. I'm Kelly Sullivan-Walden, and as a dream expert and best-selling author, I'm here to empower you to mine the gold from your nighttime dreams. Join me on the Kelly Sullivan Walden Show, part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network, available wherever you get your podcasts. Until we meet again, don't take your dreams lying down.